Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. Mark chapter 15, if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 15. And uh, uh, we are in, Shane said it's part 16, or is this 17? This is, this is part 16 of our series, Milk and Honey, which we haven't done a 16-part series in a very long time. Um, but we're covering the entire Bible. We're talking about the substance and the sweetness of the story of the Bible. We're looking at the whole thing. What is this, this book about? Because like we know, um, it's one book, but it's also 66 books. You guys know that? 66 books in your Bible. Um, it's divided into two sections, Old Testament and New Testament or Old Covenant and New Covenant. Um, and uh, there's 40 different authors Um, It spans uh, like over a thousand years from the time the first book was written to the time the last book was written. And yet, listen to this, there's not one contradiction that you can find in the Bible. That's pretty crazy. It's written in two different languages, right? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek. Two different languages, 40 different authors, thousands of years, three different continents, not a single contradiction, so you got to time out and be like, there's something special about this book, right? Like if, if all of us, if you were to like write a part of a story today and then 500 years from now on a different continent, somebody tried to pick up on your story, like there would be, like even, let me just use this for as an example. Even Star Wars, after like 20 years, there's so many like plot holes in it. Like even, sorry, I'm going to just rant for a second because the new Star Wars are just... Not the, not the, I saw Matthew, he's a big star. Not like the Disney Plus. I like the Mandalorian and stuff like that. But like the canon, like episodes seven, eight, and nine are atrocious. Atrocious. And there's so many contradictions in it. There's so many contradictions. All right, anyways, get back to this sermon. The Bible's really cool, that's my point. The theme that we've been following is this, Um, creation and commission. This is sort of the overarching story of the Bible. Creation and commission, rebellion and redemption, new creation and commission. And we've talked about the first two. Um, We looked at the the third, uh, one, two, and three, creation, commission, and rebellion happened in the first three chapters of the Bible. And then the story of redemption begins, and that's where we're at. And the last few weeks, we've been looking specifically at Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the plans of God, and Jesus came to reveal the heart of God. And tonight, we're going to see that Jesus came to redeem humanity back to God. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Jesus came to redeem humanity back to God. Now, God's plan from the very beginning, all the way in Genesis chapter 1, is to live with and dwell among his creation. But due to humanity's rebellion against God, sin entered the world. And sin severed the relationship between God and humanity. Our rebellion broke the relationship with God. And so God is on a mission, listen to me, to rid the world of evil. God is on a mission to rid the world of evil. But... We have all contributed to that evil, right? We look out at the world around us and we see there's so much evil and and brokenness and wrong and injustice in the world. And then if we examine our own heart, we very quickly realize that everything we see out there, we're capable of doing in here. Are you hearing me? That all of the evil we see in the world, we're capable of participating in on the inside, 
And so in order to rid the world of sin, God would need to rid the world of us. Are you hearing me? If God were going to rid the world of evil, he would have to rid the world of us because we're all participants in that evil. But listen to me, God has a plan that will allow for him to punish sin and save us. Can I get an amen? God has a plan to punish sin and save us. Now Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never participated in the evil. And he demonstrated God's love through good deeds, through preaching God's message, and through ridding the world of the negative impacts of sin, like sickness and loneliness and wickedness. Every place that Jesus went, he brought God's light, God's kingdom into the world. And even though all Jesus did was love and heal and include and help, the world rejected him. He's betrayed, he's abandoned, he's condemned, and ultimately murdered. But the amazing thing about all of that is that through Jesus' murder, this actually fulfills even more the plans of God. And this is seen clearly in one story as Jesus is on his way to die. So we're picking up in the middle of a story. Jesus has been, in the middle of the night, Jesus was arrested. He was then taken to an illegal court given by the high priest where they condemned him to death. Now the Jews at the time did not have any authority to... uh, uh, Okay, I was just making sure we all were hearing something too. It wasn't just me. Okay. I'm like, I know I'm talking, but I think somebody else is maybe talking equally as loud. Um, all right. Um, Mark chapter 15, this is that we're picking up in the story, and uh, Jesus is on his way to die. It says this. Now it was the custom at the festival, this is the Passover, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Okay, so we've got this scene where there was these people that rebelled against Rome, and at the time they murdered someone during this insurrection. The crowd came up and asked Pilate, who was like the governor, to do for them what they usually did. All right, release the prisoner like you usually do. So uh, Pilate said, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? This is what they've been calling Jesus knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd... Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. I want to talk on a message I've titled, In Our Place. In Our Place. So the scene is set for us there. Jesus is on his way to be crucified, to be killed. Now, the way it worked was there was this illegal illegal trial by the high priest where they, because of blasphemy that they called it, they decided that Jesus was, needed to be put to death. But blasphemy, according to Rome, wasn't a reason to be uh, put to death. It wasn't a capital crime. 
And so they've got to go and convince the Roman officials that Jesus is worthy of death. So they bring him to Pilate. Pilate interviews him, and he's like, this guy actually seems like a pretty cool guy. So he sends him off to a different guy. He's like, actually, he comes from a different uh, jurisdiction. So he sent him to Herod. And Herod looks at him, and Herod's like, oh, I'm actually really excited because um, I've always wanted to see Jesus perform a trick. And so maybe Jesus will perform a trick for me. So Herod looks at Jesus, and Jesus just sits there quietly and doesn't perform any tricks. And so he's like, I don't want to deal with this. Pilate, he's your problem. So he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate asks him a question, hey, what's the deal? Why do people want to kill you? And then after a while, he's like, there's nothing that we could put this guy to death for. So he's thinking that we'll get the crowd. Now, remember, I just talked a moment ago that when Jesus rode in on a donkey, uh, the crowd, the people, were, they're worshiping him. They're, they're, they're shouting, Hosanna. Like, here's the king. Here's the Messiah. So Pilate's thinking, okay, maybe this crowd will want Jesus to be released, and Barabbas, this murderer, will be the one put to death. And yet the high priest, they turned the crowd. They began to chant and they began to get everybody involved and they say, crucify him. We don't want Barabbas to be crucified, the murderer. We want Jesus to be crucified, the healer. And the story, it begins to reveal to us what Jesus came to do and how he came to redeem us back to God. Now, in this story, I, I want to sort of answer three, three questions that help us get this. These are my three questions. Why, how, and what? We're going to answer these questions. Now, they're big questions. I'll, I'll specify a little bit more, but this is what we're going to talk about. Why, how, and what? The first question is this, why? Why did the crowd choose Barabbas instead of Jesus? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting moment that's happening. Just like I said, a few days before, they're worshiping him. They're like, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. And now they want Barabbas instead of Jesus. We're told that Barabbas was a rebel and a murderer. He was a part of an uprising in Jerusalem and murdered someone in this rebellion. And this was the type of behavior that would ultimately lead to the temple's destruction in 70 AD. After Jesus' death, after his resurrection, um, a few years later, the the, the Jews would rebel again against the Roman oppression, and ultimately they would come in with all of Rome's force. They would kill a, a ton of the people living in Israel, and the temple would be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. Okay, so it was a big moment, and this was the type of behavior that would cause that. It was also, this sort of rebellious behavior was one of the things that the religious leaders were afraid that Jesus would cause. Listen to this. This is John chapter 11. The high priest says this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Okay, so they're afraid that Jesus' behavior is going to lead to the destruction of the temple. Now, here we have a guy named Barabbas who is actively participating in the type of behavior that would lead to the destruction of the temple. Are you hearing me? So there must be another reason why they want Barabbas. Because that, that doesn't make any sense. And, and, and it wasn't that they wanted Barabbas... It was that they didn't want Jesus. It wasn't like they're like, oh, we really could use another murderer on these streets. Like, please, Barabbas, he's a horrible guy. Let's, let's hang out with him. No, the reality is they just didn't want Jesus. 
Uh, John chapter 10, it says it like this. It gives us insight as to why they wanted to kill Jesus. It says this. Again, uh, his Jewish opponents, Jesus' Jewish opponents, pick up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I love this. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these good works do you stone me? So is it for the raising of the dead? Was it for the healing of the sick? Was it for the feeding of the thousands of people? Uh, Was it for the messages about loving your enemy and turning the other cheek and showing care and kindness to the least of these? Which good work do you want to kill me? Listen to their response. Uh, We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. This is key. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Here's the problem they had with Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be God. They considered this blasphemy. But they, the Jews, are unable to stone him. One, because Jesus escaped from them. The passage is so interesting because it just says, Jesus escaped from them. Like, well, how? Sounds like an angry mob was like coming to get him. It's like, Jesus escaped from them. They're just like, let's kill him. They're like, where'd he go? So, I, I just, there's in certain stories in the Bible that you're like, I would like more details. Like Jesus just like, Disappe- did he like vanish? He just like smoke and disappear? Did he just like slip and like he put his hood on, like grab somebody's baseball cap and like grab like Tom Cruise, like baseball cap jacket and like disappeared onto a subway? Like how did he do it? So interesting. But he escaped. But also because, listen, they don't have the authority to perform capital punishment. The Jews didn't have that authority. Rome occupied them. Rome was the political, uh, the government at the time. But, again, this actually plays into God's plans because this, the way that Jesus died actually mattered. He isn't stoned. He isn't, the rocks aren't thrown at him until he's dead, which was the customary way for the nation of Israel to carry out capital punishment. He's crucified. And this would connect a lot of Old Testament verses that we don't have time to get into to the death of Jesus. But just know that the, Jesus dying on a tree is very important to the plot line. Again, we just don't have time. I'm going to keep going. But to, the answer, to, to answer the question specifically, they chose Barabbas because they wanted to rid the world of Jesus. That, that's essentially it. They chose Barabbas, the, the murderer, the terrorist, because they wanted to rid the world of Jesus. They were unaware, however, that this is all a part of the plan. Now, the second question is this. How did God allow Jesus to be wrongly condemned? How did the father allow the son to be wrongly condemned? This is connected to a question that I think many people ask about God. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And this is probably the ultimate case study on that question. Right? Why would the father allow the son to be condemned wrongly to death? This is injustice. Right? This is not fair. Have you ever said that to your parents? That isn't fair. It's not right. I remember when I was a kid, I had to pay for my own cell phone before I could get a cell phone. So that means I had to get a job. I also had to get myself to that job. So I had to be able to drive, and I had to be able to pay for my insurance. It was so when I think I had to pay for my own insurance, car insurance, if I was going to be able to drive. But I needed to get a job. But I needed to be able to drive myself to that job to pay for my car insurance um, so I could get a cell phone. All right, and, I, and so I had to be like 16, whatever. That's besides the point. My little brother comes along. 
He's like 11 years old. They're like throwing him an iPhone. Here, we'll pay for it. Like, are you kidding me? That's not fair. Like, do you know what I, do you know how many hours I put in at the Ocean Grill? Do you know how many hours I put in at the Ocean Grill to pay for my Metro PCS cell phone? Do you guys even know what Metro PCS is? Anyways. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? (laughs) Jesus is the perfect person, and yet he's wrongly condemned to death. And listen, God is allowing a guilty person, Barabbas, to walk free. So not only is a bad thing happening to a good uh, person, but it also begs another question. If God is so good, why does he allow evil to persist in the world? Right? Like Barabbas going to die, like capital punishment makes sense for Barabbas. Why? Well, he killed somebody. So like that, well, that makes sense. But Jesus, he's perfect, he's innocent, and yet this is happening. Now, why is all this going on? Again, this is part of God's plan for redemption. This leads to an idea called substitutionary sacrifice. Substitutionary. Everyone say substitutionary. Substitutionary. It's a big word. Sacrifice. Everyone say sacrifice. This is a theme woven throughout the entire scripture. God is ridding the world of evil. But listen, it isn't just to just forgive sins. If someone murdered your whole family and your pet, it isn't just to just forgive the murderer. It's not just, right? If somebody did that, imagine your whole family, your pet, everything, whatever makes you feel something, that's my point. She's like, my pet, no. Imagine, and and then you're just like, oh, no, don't worry, it's fine. We're good. You're forgiven. That's not fair. That's not justice. That's not right. That isn't okay. That's wrong. to, To not punish evil, listen to me, is wrong. So for God to not deal with evil is wrong, and God's incapable of doing wrong. Are you hearing me? So it is just, it is fair, it is right to punish evil. So what does God do? He takes the innocent, Jesus, and punishes him for all of the evil of humanity. And Barabbas is the perfect example of what Jesus does for humanity. Here Barabbas is, evil, participating in the evil, and yet Jesus takes his place. And this story shows us what Jesus does for all of humanity. Us participating, contributing to the evil, and yet Jesus takes our place. The book of Romans puts it like this. I think it's, re- it's really helpful. It says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made sinners righteous. This verse connects us all the way back to the Genesis story. That one man that the text is talking about is Adam, and it brings us to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan and the redemption of all mankind. 
And how does God allow this to happen? Because this was the plan of God to rid the world of sin and to redeem people back to himself. Listen, it isn't fair for evil to go unpunished. So what did God do? He, he punished Jesus in our place. All of the punishment that sin and evil deserves, all of, the, all of the injustice and unfairness, all of the things that go on in the world that, ne- that needs to be, something needs to happen. God does something, and he punishes Jesus in our place. Okay, so third question. We talked about the why. We talked about the how. Third question is, what does Jesus' death do? We're going to actually talk about this in two parts. We're going to look at his death and his resurrection. We'll go quick. But what does Jesus' death do? Well, first, it pays for our sins. Jesus' death pays for our sins. The Bible says that um, we were not redeemed or we were not bought back. Imagine that. Imagine your life is, is gripped by sin and evil. It, it holds you. And you can't get out of it. Right? Imagine it's like a, like a thorny vine wrapped around you. And like the more you struggle, the tighter it gets. And, and so we're stuck in this evil and we can't get out. And then Jesus purchases us back. He, he makes the payment so that we can be released from that bondage. So Jesus, Jesus' death on the cross actually pays for our sin. And the Bible says that we weren't bought back with silver and gold or corruptible things. Like it wasn't cash money. Pastor Jim, uh, uh, our pastor here at the church, if you don't know who Pastor Jim is, he's our pastor. He's also my father, but he teaches next door most of the time. Pastor Jim gave an illustration and he said, let's imagine for a second that there was a price tag on your life and it was like $10 billion dollars. You'd be like, whoa, that's pretty impressive. Like, that's a, that's a lot of money. $10 billion, that's pretty good. Right? But then at the same time, you're like, well, like in what's like 10 billion green pieces of paper? That's what your life is worth? Okay. You're worth 10 billion green pieces of paper that the U.S. government says means something. Like, okay, that's so valuable. No, no, it says your life wasn't bought back with corruptible things like the U.S. dollar or gold and silver or things like that. It says, but rather with the precious blood of Christ. Something of infinite value is what redeemed us, purchased us back to God. So it pays for our sins. Secondly, what does Jesus' death do? Well, it defeats Satan. It defeats Satan. Listen to this. This verse is so So cool. John chapter 12, Jesus is speaking. He says this. He's talking about going to the cross. He says, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Come on, somebody. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. And he said this to indicate how he was going to die. Imagine that. He's going to Jerusalem. He's like, all right, it's time. It's time that the ruler of this world, Satan, is cast out. His reign of terror is over. Why? Because I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to take the punishment and the pain for all of sins, and I'm going to redeem back what was lost. In the garden, when God placed humans there, he gave them authority and dominion over the world. It was lost when they disobeyed God and handed over to Satan. We talked about this all over uh, a long time ago, but just to remind you, it was, it was handed over to Satan. Here Jesus comes as the God-man. Right? Fully God and fully man to take back what was lost. 
and Satan played right into God's plan. Jesus' death would be Satan's defeat, but he didn't know it, even though God told him. Not crazy. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 3. This is all the way in the beginning, right? Sin, disobedience, sin, the whole thing happens. And God speaks to, to, to the Satan. He speaks to the deceiver. And he says this. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Listen, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus' death was the strike to the heel. But his death and resurrection was the crushing blow to the serpent's head. So he's like, okay, we win. <laughs> let's send Jesus to the cross. Let's get the crowds. Let's get all of the things to work out so Jesus goes to the cross. Thinking that, okay, if we could put God to death, we'll win. And God's like, that's actually the plan. Nice one. That's the plan. And through Jesus' death... He defeats Satan. Now listen to me. Although Jesus' death defeated Satan, it hasn't yet destroyed Satan. That day is still coming. But we have the promise that through the work of Jesus, Satan has been defeated. All right, finally, what does Jesus' death do? Well, it proves God's love. It proves God's love. Jesus would say that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. And Jesus proves that love by laying down his life for both his friends and for his enemies. The proof of the love is in the cost. What did it cost? It cost his life. That's how much he loves us. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The ultimate cost, the ultimate price, so that God would show us how much he loves you. Can I tell you tonight that God loves you so much? It's a plan for your life. He sees you. He knows you. He cares about you. He's, he, the Bible says he knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows the hair on your head. He, he knows all of your days before you even take your first breath. He's got good works for you to walk in. God loves you so much. And the, the, the proof of that love was what he gave to have relationship with you, to rid you of the evil, to cleanse you. To not, rid, to not rid the world of you because of evil, but to rid the evil in you so he could have you. God loves you so much. All right, last thing. We're almost done, I promise. Number four, what does Jesus' resurrection do? Now, spoiler alert, Jesus doesn't stay dead, in case you didn't know. Crazy, right? Like, how did that happen? Well, three days later, Jesus defeated death and rose from the grave. Jesus died on the Passover. This is so interesting. Let me just nerd out for one second because this is awesome. Jesus died on the Passover, pointing back to the Exodus, the book of Exodus, and, and leading the people out of Egypt when they celebrated the very first Passover. So Jesus died on the Passover, pointing back to the Exodus, and how he's once again the fulfillment of God's plan. And everything was simply a picture of what was to come. He died on a Friday, the sixth day of the week. Jesus rested in the grave on the seventh day of the week, or the Sabbath, the day of rest. The same day that God rested after he created all things. Six days he worked, seventh day he rested. Jesus died on the sixth day. His body rested in the tomb on the seventh day. But then Jesus rose again on the eighth day of the week. Like, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus rose again on the eighth day of the week, or the first day of the week, to usher in a new beginning. This was a new one. It was a new start. 
That's why it's called Old Covenant and New Covenant. There was a new beginning that began that, that Jesus' death and resurrection ushered in. And just like his death, his resurrection brings in more of the plans of God. Three things. Number one, it proves his deity. It proves that he's God. Jesus wasn't just a guy. He wasn't just a guy with a message. He wasn't just some cool guy that ran around and taught some nice sermons and then, like everybody, dies. <laughs> no, Jesus died and he defeated death. And the Bible tells us that there was over 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So you're like, how can we believe it's true? Well, there's 500 eyewitnesses. There's four, there's four biographies written by eyewitnesses that have lasted thousands of years, passed down, uncorrupted from generation to generation to prove to you that Jesus is not in the grave. He rose from the dead. It proves that he's God. Secondly, it defeats death and secures eternal life. The Bible says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of the resurrection. In other words, his life secures that we have life in God. Jesus' resurrection secures that we have life in God. And we can walk in that full life that God intends for us to walk in. There's one interesting story where Jesus talks about, and it's interesting because um, it seems like a parable, but most scholars don't believe it's a parable. They think it's an, a, an actual story. But the story says that there was a guy, a rich man, who died. And when he died, he was separated from God. And then there was this poor man, a beggar named Lazarus, who died. And that entered into the presence of God. And that this rich man could see that there was this big chasm between where he was and where Lazarus was. And he could see him afar off. And he, he, he was afflicted. He was tormented. And he could see Lazarus. And he said, hey, help me. And Lazarus is basically like, I'm sorry, there's nothing. You kind of made your choice already. And he responds and he's like, hey, well, could you at least send somebody back to earth, back to time and space, and tell my family about what's to come after this? And they respond and they say, well, he's got Moses and he has the prophets. That's enough. And they're like, in other words, he's got the word of God. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. But if somebody came back from the dead and told them, then we'd believe. And, and then the response is like, even if that happened, people won't believe. And the amazing thing is, is here we have somebody that came back from the dead to tell us, hey, there's life after, there's more to come. And the, the, the implication is it secures for us our eternal life. And the, the final thing, and I'll close, is this, is there's a promise of abundant life. What does Jesus' resurrection do for us? Well, it, it secures our eternal life, but then it also shows that there's a promise of an abundant life. Listen to Romans chapter 8 says this. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The Bible says that, that because Christ is in us, and because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in us, we can have real life. He brings life to our mortal bodies. Jesus is alive. Because he's alive, we can live life to the full. And because he's alive, we can have a living relationship with him. Listen, this whole thing isn't a sham. 
We're not praying to an invisible God that doesn't exist. We're praying to an invisible God who is absolutely real. And just like we know that like at home or wherever your parents are, like there are your parents, even though we can't see them, we know that they're there. The same is true as God. Just because we can't see him doesn't make him not real. He's real. We have, because Jesus is alive, we have a living relationship with him. And because he's alive, we can live life to the full. Through faith, we have access to God. We can abide in Jesus, meaning intimate relationship with our creator, and we can walk in the plans that God has for our life. Can I encourage you tonight? This is kind of a theme over and over again. But you can know God personally. And that personal relationship with God actually gives our life the full, the fullest life we could possibly live. It's funny because I think a lot of times we think that the fullest life we could live is just like doing whatever we want. That, then I'd be so happy. Oh, I'd be, if I had so much money because I do whatever I want, I'd be so happy. My life would just be awesome. The story of the Bible proves that that's not true. Right? Like the whole like underlying story of the Bible is that when people disobey God, they don't trust God, their life falls apart. That's the story of the Bible. But even if you like go on like Instagram or like read new, like the news of like popular, wealthy, doing whatever they want people, like they're pretty much miserable. I mean, it's like every week, not, I mean, maybe not every week, but all the time you hear about another like super famous person that died at 40. Why? Well, because that wasn't it. Like there's got to be bigger life. Jesus says, I came to give you bigger life. Bigger life than your experiences or feelings or like what you think is cool and important. Life to the full and abundant life. And Jesus' resurrection secures for us an abundant life, the fullness of life. The reason your life exists. I like playing guitar in the band. I'm going to close with this. I know I said like a million times, but I'm really going to. I technically have till 8.15. It's only 8.11. So we're good. <clears throat> I really enjoy playing in the band on the worship team. I like playing the guitar. I love playing music. I think it sounds fantastic. Not me playing music particularly, but like music in general. I love music. Um, but as, as goofy as this illustration is, a guitar is not supposed to just like hang on a wall. It's just not. A guitar is supposed to be played. And then when it is played, especially with a good band, like when Charles is on the keys and Gabby's singing, you're like, you're like, hold on. And Nate's playing his three chords like, like three chords of the truth, you're like there's, some, like, there's something happening. Like life is happening, fullness is happening. And I just want to, as Jesus came and fully gave himself for us, there's an invitation for us to fully give our life to God. And that when we do that, we enter into that full life. It's like all of a sudden, it's, it's where it's supposed to be.